0: American soccer fans, welcome to episode 126 of the USA Soccer Cast. We are bringing you everything about the U.S. national teams, the players, the leagues, and everything else that impacts the game of soccer in these United States. I'm Donald Wine. Today we conclude our series of interviews with each of the candidates for U.S. soccer vice president. That election will take place at the Federation's annual general meeting that takes place in Dallas the weekend of February 8th. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Pete Zopfi, Chairman of U.S. Youth Soccer and a member of the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors. He currently serves on the Sports Medicine Research, Education, and Advisory Committee and the Nominating and Governance Committee. He's also been a part of several other committees and task force while on the U.S. Soccer Board. As we have done with Nathan Goldberg and Mike Colonna, we're going to ask Dr. Zopfi questions on a number of topics facing U.S. Soccer, including some, That have extra importance for fans. I know you're looking forward to the conversation. So here it is the interview with Dr. Pete Sophie. We are here with Dr. Pete Sophie, the chairman of US youth soccer and a member of the US soccer board of directors. He is a candidate for US soccer vice president. Pete, great to talk to you and thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Donald. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So we have several questions in different categories we want to get to, but I want to start with the simple question: Why do you think you're the best choice for U.S. Soccer Vice President?
1: Well, that that usually is the beginning question. You're right. So um, I've had the privilege of being on the U.S. Soccer Board now for five and a half years, I had an opportunity to work with the current board and the current staff, which I, I think are extremely uh, qualified for what they're doing. Uh, the last couple of years we've had a lot of successes, achieved a lot of goals. And there's a number of initiatives right now, strategic initiatives that uh, the staff and the board, uh, including myself, are working on that I think are really going to make an impact for soccer in America over the next three to four years, which we know are critical with all of the the, uh, events that are coming here.
0: So obviously there's a lot of things going on here. One thing that I know the board has been Uh, involved with over the last month or so is the moving of the headquarters from Chicago to uh, just outside the Atlanta area. The new National Training Center is supposed to open up the next couple of years. Everyone's going to be under one roof. What do you see as the biggest benefit to this new facility that you're going to have down there in Fayette County?
1: Yeah, I actually think it's a fantastic move on our part to do that. Um, Obviously, it takes a lot of financial input, and we've been very fortunate to have some um, very generous donors, and obviously the uh, uh, city of Atlanta and that area has been very gracious in in helping us arrange this. So we're very excited of not only moving the headquarters down there, which will be obviously a benefit to uh, our resources and the utilization of that, but also having a home for all of our national teams. And it includes the extended national teams, it excludes the DEI Um, I think it's going to be um, a really mecca for soccer in America and something envious around the world. Uh, The other thing that I think is going to be an extreme advantage is we're going to be able to leverage the technology that's available in sports nowadays um, to improve our athletes' performance. A good example is the U.S. Performance Center up in North Carolina, up in Charlotte. And they actually are the home for the uh, USA women's field hockey team, and they also are the home for U.S. Uh, taekwondo and Judo. And both of those sports have done extremely well in recent years because of the training and performance enhancement that they've received there. They're getting good nutrition, they're getting good mental health, emotional health and physical health training, good monitoring in the area and was able to tour that facility with uh, Skip Gilbert, the USYS CEO, and Todd Lockhart, the USYS current chair, uh, who's be taking my place. Um, We were able to tour that facility and it was just fantastic. Um, We've got to see some of the um, national team players doing their workouts and the monitoring, the specific one-on-one training. And I can just envision us having our national teams in one site Having that sort of intense um, performance-directed uh, training, uh, obviously enhancing our role in our performance in the future in World Cups, et cetera. So I, I think it's going to be a tremendous benefit for us. Uh, the one last thing I would add to that is a lot of people just envision it as being a site for the headquarters and for the um, national teams and extended national teams. It's actually going to be a a focal point also for the entire membership of U.S. soccer, because there's going to be workshops there, meetings there. It it in turn will will be kind of the magnet for the entire membership and entire U.S. soccer. And uh, obviously Atlanta is a very good place, good location uh, for this to be uh, at.
0: You know, you mentioned rightfully that a lot of the focus has been on the facilities for the national teams the extended national teams being a part of that and also being the, uh, eventually the new headquarters uh for the operations of US soccer but one area that i know you're very familiar with i know you're a level 8 referee a lot of people don't realize what it takes for someone to become certified as a coach or a referee how you know how many courses you have to go through all the you know different travel programs and different avenues you can take but what a lot of people realize now is that it is very expensive to get to a level where you're able to uh, get a lot of coaches certified to be able to grow that contingent of U S soccer. How do you help make that a little bit more affordable and help also help, you know, navigate the the red tape so that people don't look at it as a daunting task to become a coach for their son's travel team?
1: Yeah. Great question. And so uh, you bring up a good point. Uh, Cost has become a barrier for all aspects of soccer, not just for players, but also for referees and for coaches. Um, because to get your licensing, especially to advance to a higher level, um, it takes a lot of time away from your occupation. It takes a lot of personal uh, finances out of your pocketbook. And um, it, it can be hard to, to pay yourself back, so to speak, uh, by getting the sort of exposure in games and experience. Uh, it's to become a referee or a coach, it takes more than going to a class. It takes refereeing games. It takes coaching players. And so those opportunities need to be provided. I think the National Training Center, just to bounce back to that, I think will provide uh, an area and a location where some of that referee training and experience and also that coach training and experience can occur. But it's really going to require um, a concerted effort on the part of U.S. soccer, uh, the various member organizations, the state associations, to really implement uh, referee growth uh, and coach growth throughout the United States. An example would be with referees. I kind of break it into four categories. There's a recruitment phase, which is um, probably the easiest to grow numbers because you're recruiting new people that don't necessarily know, the biggest barrier being financial. Um But that can be approached by the various organizations and state associations underwriting the financial cost of that. An example is uh, we just started a program in Cal North uh in a conjunction with u s y s where we reached out to the University of california davis women's soccer team and I talked to I met with the women's soccer coach and one of their assistant athletic directors about a month and a half two months ago, and I asked them what could we do to partner? U.S. Soccer and U.S.Y.S. with the collegiate system. And they were talking about coach training. And then we came up with the idea, well, what about referees? So I asked them, I said, do any of your ladies on your team referee? And she, the coach says, no, but I sure wish they knew the rules. And I said, well, what do you think about us trying to do a pilot program where we provide entry-level training for your, for your players at no cost and then provide them the opportunity to referee in some of the youth and adult games in Northern California. Well, they actually have March 3rd, that referee class planned. So that's a good example of how we can reach out and overcome those financial barriers for recruitment. The second part of refereeing is retention. And retention really involves number three and number four parts of refereeing, and that's referee abuse and promotion. So retention, you you need to have those referees have a vision for what they can become. But in the meantime, you also don't need to have them abused on the field. And unfortunately, we see referee abuse at all levels. It seems like every day I look in the media um, and I see that there's some referee over in Europe or in one of the professional leagues being chased off the field by a fan. Uh, so it's not just the chanting uh, from the stands anymore. It's the actual physical threat to those referees and the consequences of that. Um, so I think referee abuse is is one of those areas that we have to really address. And I think the good thing is, is the U.S. soccer has started a referee abuse working group. Um, it's actually headed by Mike Kalina uh, as the chair of that group. Uh, he has a number of representatives from the membership that are part of that. That group has been populated and will start functioning over the next two weeks. We'll probably even have an update at the AGM in a week and a half. Uh, But that's one of the first working groups that's moving forward to address that issue. And last but not least, I would say promotion is the key to allow these referees to see there's something more than just going out and making some money on the weekend. Uh, A perfect example is the recent Women's World Cup final, where we had four American referees, three of them that were female, um that were refereeing in the final and that sort of kind of marketing and notoriety i can't believe there's not a lot of young female referees in america that aren't aspiring to be the next tory pence in the world cup so i think those are the four areas with refereeing that i think are important to to consider
0: i want to get back to the safety part of things and the abuse in just a second but before i do just a follow up to your question or to this to your answer When we talk about some of the facilities that we have, right, obviously we're building the one outside Atlanta, but I know we currently have facilities. I think referees do their training in in the Kansas City area. There's also been uh, some training courses out in Southern California. Does U.S. soccer, you know, in an effort to kind of keep that reach going, yeah, they may concentrate their efforts in Atlanta, but there's still plans to have some of these facilities across the nation so that people from all regions would be able to partake in some of these uh, initiatives that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, great question. I I had the opportunity when I uh, went through my national goalkeeper licensing course to do that in Chula Vista, down in Southern California. Fantastic facility. Um, I would envision that U.S. soccer is going to maintain these satellite facilities, because like you say, Kansas City, Um, You know, we've got our facilities there, Hall of Fame there, we've got Chula Vista, which is a beautiful environment, and obviously California is kind of a hotbed for soccer, and the population that's down in that Southern California area. So I would envision us maintaining those satellite facilities, and, and maybe even looking to expand to other areas of the country, where you would have smaller satellite facilities, again, to keep that regional participation throughout the United States, and then still have, of course, the centralized facility uh, down in Atlanta. We're such a big country, it's very hard to just centralize into one area. Uh, We see that with USU soccer. We have our headquarters in in Dallas and Frisco, uh, which is Mm -hmm. in the Dallas area. So we're very centrally located, but we've got four different regions and it stretches from Hawaii up to Maine. And so we find that when we do our regional championships, we don't bring them all down to Texas. We go ahead and, and spread those throughout the region. So and I would imagine U.S. soccer will continue that same sort of approach.
0: I mentioned, you know, you mentioned some of the abuse that referees receive and, and even coaches and stuff like that. I want to shift to the to the topic of safety, not just among referees and coaches, but also players. Of course, we've uh, had the ACE report come out that chronicled a lot of, you know, harrowing tales coming from brave NWSL players who had come forward with their story about how uh, certain, you know, certain stories that they brought, there are certain issues that they brought to U.S. soccer or to other entities like Safe SafeSport uh, were neglected or, or otherwise uh, unattended to. I know the Yates Implementation Committee is out there and I've seen some of the work that that they're doing and, and they're, that's a good start. But I think the question that I have is, how do you rebuild the trust that was broken by places like Safe Sport in the eyes of these players so that when they do come forward to talk about abuse, talk about verbal abuse, referees, players, coaches, how do you rebuild that trust so that they feel comfortable in coming forward should something like that occur again in the future?
1: Yeah, no, no I, I think that's a, a great question. One of the things I appreciated about, about Sally H.'s report and what her group did is it wasn't just focused on the professionals i mean obviously that was the initiating factors is the unfortunate uh, occurrences and events that were happening with the NWSL and some of the young ladies involved with that uh, and we've heard about colleges etc um, but we've seen it in the youth landscape and in the grassroots landscape forever and it's been a problem that we've addressed collectively as state associations and organizations it's difficult though. It's like fighting crime. You you can never get rid of crime. You just always have to have an awareness of it and continue to try and address those issues when they come up and try to prevent it as as best you can. And the best way to prevent is first a collaborative collective effort for everybody to have that education and awareness. Um being a physician, being a mandatory reporter, um having done what I've done for 35 years I've learned to read people and read situations, Uh, but it's taken experience, it's taken education along the way, uh, and I can detect abuse some of the time, not all of the time, but I'm always aware and looking for it. That same sort of experience and education has to be widespread throughout our collective membership. If If all of us are being aware and looking for abuse, whether it be coach player, whether it be referee... Um, Whether it be between players, um, we need to be able uh, to look for that. I think SafeSport made an effort, and I've been through all the classes. They're mandatory, but I had actually been through those kind of classes before. I think it does a good job on educating and raising awareness. Um, Where it has a hard time, I think, functioning is the enforcement when something is discovered because there's a lot of incidents that come up and the frustration that I know a lot of my membership feels is that there'll be reports turned in and then there's either quote-unquote not enough evidence so that coach or that person is cleared even though the state or other organization might have other means to discipline or monitor that coach but because they've been cleared by SafeSport and they have the sole authority over that it creates a kind of a catch-22 for everyone. And so one of the reasons that we sent the letters to Congress uh, four or five months ago, and they were co-authored by myself, Mike Kalina of U.S. Club, Michael Karen of AYSO, and John Mata of uh, the Adult Association, uh, we sent that to Congress, but we also had our 54 state associations send letters to their representatives. Again, encourage them not necessarily to scrap the program, but to really take a good look at what the program was doing, the authority that was based, and to maybe make it more collaborative with the various organizations instead of having the sole authority to say yes or no to some of these reports. One of the um, one of the outcomes that came from the Sally Yates report was U.S. soccer developing their safe soccer program with positive coaching alliance. And what that is, is a nice 30 minute module, again, putting education out there for any and every member to become more aware of the signs and symptoms that are associated uh, with abuse and with some of the things that we're trying to correct and detect. So um That's a long answer to your question, but I think the short answer is essentially it's all of our responsibility and it comes with education, experience, and I think collaboration between all of us.
0: Yeah, I I think the the main crux of my question was more and you you answered it was more about the reporting portion of things, the fact that a lot of people felt they took they did their job, they took their, you know, their report to the people that they were supposed to and it was they turned a blind eye to it and how do you rebuild that trust is it, it it's a delicate question it requires delicate you know delicate answer and it also requires just everyone as you mentioned being involved you, you mentioned the fact that it's not just focused on professional players it's also focused on uh the youth as well the youth has had to have that issue i want to switch to youth development but a different aspect of youth development obviously you are involved in youth soccer quite a bit you're the chairman of us youth soccer this uh th- this program that we have or i guess this uh th- this map that we have was reduced at one point to pay to play but now it feels like a smorgasbord of different ideas on the table we have some uh you know academies where there are there are free but they're not accessible to a lot of people by distance or socio socioeconomic lines how do you organize everything as, as vice president, how do you organize this system that is youth soccer and, and make it where it becomes one that can reach out to some of these neighborhoods that they're not reaching, not just in the urban areas, but also in the rural communities and even some of our native populations?
1: Yeah, I i, th- I think the key um, is a term that I like to use called functional uh, unification, And what I mean by that term is we have a lot of uh, diverse, separate organizations at the youth, adult, professional, athlete level. Um, The beauty of U.S. soccer is we combine those under one umbrella. Uh, our, Our challenge in the past is we have all worked in different silos. And so... My problem wasn't necessarily MLS's problem or U.S. club's problem or the adult's problem or vice versa. At least that's what I thought because I was in my silo as we've become uh, and established more collaborative relationships over the last couple of years. And I give a lot of credit to some of my fellow board members at U.S. Soccer, Michael Cairn, Mike Kalina, Don Garber, Chris Aarons, et cetera. We've learned to first communicate with each other and we've now learned that there's a lot more commonality and differences with us. And an example of that might be um, MLS has started MLS Go. And when that was first proposed, um, I, can, I can be honest that a lot of my state associations and a lot of the youth organizations felt threatened by that. They thought, well, what is MLS doing um, going into the youth market below the competitive level. you know we could understand the MLS academies, you know they're building players for the pros, but going into the urban uh, and rural areas to try and serve underserved um, players and to get them to sign up and play. But well, wait a second, that's our job. But realistically, we were struggling, uh, the youth organizations struggling to reach those communities. And MLS with its branding and with its outreach uh, was able to propose MLS Go to reach and target just those specific underserved individuals and giving those kids an opportunity to play. Once we had an opportunity to talk, and I'm talking about US soccer, I mean, US youth soccer and MLS. Once we had an opportunity to communicate and collaborate on that, all of a sudden it became not a uh, competition but it became a collaboration to try and reach those kids and think of different, different ways that we could support those either with fundraising, scholarships, grants, et cetera. So now what has become uh, an initial perceived competition has now become a collaboration and a partnership uh, between us. And I think those kind of relationships are happening now. And I anticipate they're going to continue to happen in the future, especially with the current individuals that are, the collaborative leaders of U S soccer.
0: And related to that, you know, there's two, two things. When I look at, you know, how this, you know, all works and how we bring more people in. And one of those is that there is a language barrier that exists for a lot of people, not just the players who we're not reaching. And again, some of these communities where English may not be the first language or may not be spoken in the home, but also for players who are at a younger age are starting to consider Europe. Uh, as a destination to begin their professional career. what has being done or what's U.S. soccer's role in your mind to kind of reduce those barriers from a language perspective and not not only reach those players in these communities that, again, may not speak English inside uh, the home, but also for players who are trying to prepare for their career that may take them abroad to a country that doesn't speak English? How does that work to help reduce those barriers for, you know, not just the kids here, but also the kids who are preparing to go abroad?
1: Sure, I I I know that there's no specific organized program to teach multiple languages to players based on when they're where they may go play or where they may travel to, but I think here in America we have to recognize that our second language is really Spanish, uh, and really to reach out to the Latino um, groups that are out there because a lot of the Latino groups um, are unaffiliated. And actually, being from Northern California, I was a goalkeeper. Um, but I did most of my playing and most of my training in the North Bay Latin League. Um, I was the only Caucasian on my team. Uh, the good thing was is soccer is a universal language. So I was very well accepted. I felt part of the team, etc. cetera, but I wish I would have known Spanish that would have made it easier for me. Um, I think for us, I think concentrating on Spanish And making sure that the communications and information that we provide to Americans um, at least is bilingual, including Spanish and English, I think is a good start. I think identifying certain regions where certain uh, ethnicities and cultures are predominant and then adding those second or third languages again to the information that's provided by either U.S. soccer, state associations or the various organizations uh, would be helpful. Uh, A good example is the demographic of the Asian community um, is embraces soccer in Asia, but we don't see the Asian community necessarily embrace soccer here in America. And we really don't have information that's given uh, in um, Japanese or Chinese or even Filipino to the um, various communities where they may be concentrated. And I know if we look around America, we have different subsets in different areas that, you know, that might be an attempt uh, not only by the local groups, but maybe U.S. soccer can support that development in various uh, subsets of the country. So,
0: We will return with more from Dr. Pete Sophie after this. Hey, everyone. Are you looking for the latest gear for your U.S. national teams, Major League Soccer, the NWSL, or any other team in the world of soccer? The USA Soccer Cast has affiliate partnerships that are ready to help you out. Head to linktree.com USA Soccer where we have links to Homage, Fanatics, the MLS store, and breaking Feet. You can get the jersey, shirt, hat, or accessory you're looking for to support your team while also saving some money in helping this show in the process, again, linktree.com/usa-soccercast. Click on the links and get your gear. And we thank you as always for your support of the show. We're back and we resume our interview with U.S. Soccer Vice Presidential Candidate, Dr. Pete Sophie. I want to go back to overall governance here and and looking at the role of vice president. One of the duties, according to the bylaws, is to identify new challenges in the soccer ecosystem and propose potential solutions and pathways. So I ask you, what's what in your mind is the new challenge facing this federation? And as vice president, what is your pathway to solving it?
1: Absolutely. Well, the the primary challenge um, and we've kind of touched on it throughout the the interview so far. uh, The primary challenge is is going to be the functional unification of all of our membership. And what that's going to take is that's going to take collaboration because we're going to get a bump in membership just because we're having Copa America and the World Cup and the Olympics and hopefully the Women's World Cup here. the key isn't getting that bump it's what are we going to do with those players? Are we going to have referees to deal with that? Are we going to have coaches to deal with that? Are we going to have the right administrators collaborating together to deal with that? Or are we going to be back in the same old situation where we're competing to steal players from each other? Um, I'm optimistic that we're going to do the former, not the latter. I think we're going to have our membership collaborating I think we are going to have a functional unification of U.S. soccer over the next couple of years. Uh, And part of of my optimism is based on the fact U.S. soccer has already started that. Um, Several months ago, uh, we had initial discussions about functional unification in America uh, with the youth and with the adults. That's now been expanded to include all of the membership. And we actually have uh, a dedicated group of U.S. soccer staff that are in the process of phase one of what they call the soccer ecosystem review. And what they're doing is they're reaching out to key stakeholders and membership. They've collected a lot of information. They were at the United Soccer Coaches in Anaheim a couple of weeks ago. They were at the ECNL symposium in Las Vegas a week ago. And they met with a number of stakeholders, a number of members at different levels of soccer. And they've collected that information. Uh, the reason I'm privy to that is, is as chairman of the nomination and governance committee, the nomination and governance committee is overseeing this initiative, and so we actually had a meeting yesterday morning uh, to talk about that. And the three points that they actually raised, and I'll share those with you, um, from their uh, information gathering, was collaboration, uh, connectivity, and approach. And essentially, what they're going to do, um, I asked them for a tentative timeline is they hope to have specifics available f- for the AGM in Dallas. Uh, they may even schedule a couple workshops to sh- share with the membership, the input they've got and what next steps are. And the hope is that we're gonna form a, a SACO ecosystem working group in about three weeks and that that working group will become functional at that point and begin working towards strategies with the various stakeholders and then develop a plan that we can implement with the goal being we want to implement it by the end of this year, the first part of next year, so that we're ready for all of those large events that are coming in. Um, so that's where my optimism is based, is I think we have some really, really highly qualified staff that are working on this. I know we've got some some committed, uh dedicated uh collaborative leaders, uh, including myself, that are spearheading this. And so I'm optimistic that uh um, we're going to be able to achieve that uh, functional unification we talked about.
0: We're going to talk about Copa America and the world cup in, in just a minute, but I did want to go to the professional leagues that we have here. And of course, I, I don't, I don't know if you're on Twitter or a lot or on social media, but of course the big debate is whether uh promotion relegation would be the, the go-to system that would help soccer thrive here in the United States as it does in, in other systems across the world between MLS USL, USL League One, and also on the women's side, you have the NWSL and the USL Super League and, and W League. What is your What is your opinion? Are you in favor of a prom- promotional relegation system, or is there another system that you think would work to help benefit the rise of all of these
1: leagues? Excuse me. I think um, uh, to, to be honest, I, I think the professional leaders in our in our organization probably have a much better. Um, perspective on that um, from a fan's perspective uh, which that's what the pros are about is having fans like us that watch those games go to those games etc I think promotion relegation when you see it over in Europe um, it's exciting to see people move up and down up and down um, so there is merit to that but with that being said in American sports you don't really see that I, I don't see that if the 49ers lose the game last weekend that they're move to the uh, second division. That's They're a sore subject.
0: I'm a Lions fan. That's a sore subject for me. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I apologize. You should be very proud of those Lions, because yeah, they, absolutely. Uh, I, I know you're from the really Bay Area, well.
0: so congratulations. But yeah, go. Please yeah. go ahead.
1: I thought you had us, um, but yeah. I so I would say that um, I, I I would defer to the professionals um, on this question, but I think there's merit to both. I mean, there's a certain consistency uh, and standardization of knowing that your team is always going to be quote unquote in the top division. Um, I know I'm a, I'm an earthquake, San Jose earthquakes fan, and we've actually won a couple of championships. Uh, but the last couple of years, we haven't necessarily done that well. And a couple of years ago, if there was relegation and promotion, we would have been relegated. Um, so I, I'm not sure as, as a fan, how I would have felt about that. Now, from a league perspective, you know, I'd have to uh, defer to commissioner Gar- Garber or Mr. Papadokadis and, and how they would think that the professionals would react to the relegation and promotion, at least with the top level. So um I guess my answer is I don't really have a clear answer.
0: And, and just related to that. And again, in your capacity that you, that, you know, I think the number one issue facing all these leagues and all these teams is stability. You know, we have leagues that are losing teams, gaining teams. As you mentioned, there's not promotion relegation, but we still have a lot of volatility between these different leagues. Teams are, you know, leaving one league for another and vice versa. How do, how does U.S. soccer help these leagues maintain their stability? So if they do want to switch formats, they're able to.
1: Yeah, I think, I think U.S. soccer is taking a more, uh, active role uh, and accountability role for the for the strength and stability of the professional leagues. And I'll use a, a local example. Um, you look at Bay FC, they're coming into the NWSL, and they're supported by a lot of our former athletes. And one of the co-owners is uh, Danielle Slayton, who's one of our board members. Um, and I see, so I see U.S. soccer actively supporting that women's team being reestablished here in the Bay Area, which we have a great soccer fans here. We've always turned out um, in numbers and support here, um, but we've always had teams taken away from us, or we've lost teams. Uh, the Cyber Rays were a good example. They won the championship, and then the next year they were gone. Um, so you know, you buy your Cyber Cyber Ray jersey, and it's now in my closet because there's no more Cyber Rays. Um, so I think there, like you said, the stability is is important in the professional leagues. I, I think I see a different approach now from U.S. soccer than maybe in the past, uh, especially on the women's side. Uh, and not only with the abuse uh, topics that we discussed earlier, but actually the financial support and getting the field support and really helping build that game. And I also see, uh, for that matter, I see the, men's professional leagues supporting the women's professional leagues in being reestablished and growing and you know this is a this is an unprecedented error for growth of professional soccer both male and female at all levels uh, in the united states and i i think i see us soccer taking a more active role in that
0: i want to shift you know a little bit more globally obviously the the world is coming to the united states in the next few years for several different tournaments, Copa America, W gold cup, you know, the club world cup uh, next year, and then 2026 world cup. And potentially, as you mentioned, the 2027 women's world cup followed by the Olympics. A a huge era is about to embark on us in U S soccer. But of course we're trying to make this sport, the preeminent sport in the country and and the preeminent team being the United States national teams. How do you continue to do that? And how do you, open up more opportunities for Americans to see these teams play?
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, this is unprecedented. And I think a lot of it is based on the um, financial and commercial um, opportunities that FIFA and the rest of the world see in the United States. And, And I mean, yeah, granted, it's, it's great that they, they gave us the Men's World Cup for you know, this upcoming session. And it's, it's great that COPE America is coming up here. But a lot of that's based on on what we've done in the past with events and how successful they have been uh, at the gate and commercially and through the, the media. And so I think uh, FIFA and the rest of the world recognizes that um, we're kind of a goldmine here. And soccer is growing among the fans and among the players. Um, And so I I think that's going to continue. We're going to continue to have those opportunities as long as we continue to be good hosts and it continues to be successful here on a financial and commercial basis. And I I don't see any reason it wouldn't. In fact, if anything, I think it's going to be very difficult to not have most of the major events occur in the United States in the future just simply because we're going to be a hotbed, not of only fanism, but also of um, you know TV rights, commercial rights. Um, people, you know, like to come to the United States. It's it's a stable environment. Um, so, yeah, I think from that perspective, I think we're going to continue to to do well.
0: So, just as a follow up to that, when we talk about the World Cup, for example, coming to our shores, uh, usually the World Cup has a set of tickets, as you know, for the local uh, fans that are way cheaper than the tickets that are shown to us as international fans that travel for these games. I've been to several World Cups on the men's women's side. But, of course, a lot of people are are almost, you know, anticipating that this World Cup would be the most expensive of all time and would price a lot of people out. How do you make it where – I know this is not a U.S. soccer-led or controlled event. But how do you advocate for that family in Oakland, or the, for me, the family here in DC, who, you know, this is the once in a lifetime opportunity to see their national team play at a World Cup or any national team play at a World Cup? How do you make it where it doesn't cost them all of their gold to get to those yeah. games?
1: It's going to be extremely difficult. Um, it, it's not that it can't be done. Um, an example you look at, I just saw the prices for the Super Bowl. Uh, the cheapest huh. ticket is $10,000. Um, well, that I, I don't know any families, including myself, that are willing to spend $10,000 even for the, for my 49ers. So um, I think it's going to be uh, limited opportunities, unfortunately, uh, for, for people. And I think we can increase those opportunities by the organizations themselves, uh, both uh, local, state, and national um, purchasing tickets and making them affordable for families. And granted, we, we won't be able to purchase enough tickets to supply them to everybody that would like to go to these games. But at least if we made some efforts so that some of the people that can't afford these games, you're right, it's, it, we're going to price ourselves out. But if we can at least make it affordable for some families, um, I think that would be uh, a worthwhile effort to do. Um, and, and I think that would start with everybody. I would say local leagues having, you know, purchasing a, a block of tickets or, you know, a national organization purchasing a block of tickets and maybe distributing them through a, a raffle or, or some other means. But, you know, it would be, I think, a very worthwhile cause for us to do that. I think it's a, a great question not a lot of people have considered. Um, but I know after reading the paper this morning and looking at that Super Bowl cost, um, it makes all the sense in the world that a lot of these Copa and, and World Cup games, especially involving the United States, are going to be very, very difficult to financially afford.
0: When we look at, you know, just globally or even just regionally here, we have a question here from uh, Eric Schmitz and he, he writes and he says, soccer unites us here and with the world around us. Where do you see U.S. soccer's role and responsibility within CONCACAF for obviously for our listeners, CONCACAF? is the region we're in North America, the Caribbean and Central America. How do you envision us soccer's role or what has it been thus far, you know, given your, your status on the board and how do you can, how do you see that continue to evolve as CONCACAF continues to receive so much attention in the form of these tournaments?
1: Yeah, I I think that um, our role is just going to continue to increase uh, in importance I think we already hold a central role. That's that's why we're holding these events. Uh, that's why we're always at the table when there's discussions about c- Concacaf decisions, etc. Um, you know, I think Cindy and JT have done an excellent job a- as leaders uh, internationally for us, not only at Concacaf or but also with FIFA. And I, I think that role and that importance is only going to increase. They can't do anything but that because again, America itself is increasing, and Concacaf as a um area is increasing compared to other areas. It used to be there was Europe and then the rest of the world. And then there was Europe and then there was South America. Uh, but now I think CONCACAF is achieving a status uh, that is nearing the same status as those two areas, uh, which is important. But you see that in Asia and Africa also. But I think in particular, CONCACAF, especially with the collaboration again between Mexico, ourselves and Canada, um not only for this World Cup, but between Mexico and us for the women's World Cup bid, I think is, again is demonstrating uh, the potential power and future power and influence of CONCACAF. So, yeah, that the answer would be it, it's it's vital and and big now. It's just going to get larger.
0: In the, uh, the the final question I have in this area, would it be something that U.S. Soccer considers? Of course, there's not just the World Cups, the the senior national team World Cups. There's also the youth national team world cups we're obviously getting the club world cup here as kind of a warm-up in 2025 is it you know do you feel like it should be u.s soccer's policy to try and get all these tournaments and land all these tournaments here in the united states both on the men's and women's
1: side um absolutely but even more important i think that we should do the same for the extended national teams I think mm-hmm. that we need to make a, a stronger effort to get the beach soccer championships here, get get the power ch- powered uh, championships here, um, get the deaf soccer championship line. I mean, we we have so many very successful, committed, extended national teams that all have World Cups. And we have a number of our teams that are doing very well in those World Cups. L- let them celebrate and win their championships on home soil. And I think, yeah, we should be actively pursuing, yes, the the club championships and the, you know, the senior championships and the youth championships, but I also would extend that to the national, extended national teams. You know, let's, let's get those championships here. I mean, one of the things that we've been working on at US soccer, or USU soccer the last several months is we developed a relationship with beach soccer. Um, and I'll be honest, prior to my conversations with those young ladies, uh, I didn't know the size of the field or the the construct of the field for beach soccer. I do now. I went to their presentation at the United Soccer Coaches Convention that we had sponsored in our USU soccer workshops. And it was fantastic. It was well, well attended. Uh, The three young ladies that presented did a fantastic job. They talked about their successes, talked about their travels. And we actually have pilot programs that we're starting with the beach soccer program, with uh, Northern California and North Texas and Virginia. And we have a half dozen other states that want to do the same thing, not necessarily on the coast. I have uh, Indiana wants to explore developing a beach soccer program in their state. And I think the more we can support those extended national teams, uh, both in education, promotion and exposure, the more they're going to get athletes recruited to their sport and we're going to become even stronger moving forward. Uh and obviously I would think if we could help host the uh beach soccer uh world cup here in America what a great promotion that would be for the sport here. Um that not only is great for beach soccer but a lot of those skills translate to the grass field and can be used for our other players in, in other avenues. So um yeah a uh, short answer yes I think we should continue to Strive for as many of those championships as we can.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the extended national teams. That was actually going to be my next question, so I'll follow up your your answer with this. In the absence of those, you know, international tournaments, I, I think the extended national teams have done a great job at, at at highlighting themselves over the last year or so. They've really started to build a lot of awareness uh, with those teams. I'm I'm sure you're you'd be happy to note that. You know, for me, I've been at games where we're watching a senior national team play on the field and on our phones, we're watching power soccer or watching beach soccer when they're competing in the tournament. But how do you continue to build upon that awareness, bring more resources to them? I know obviously the, the national training center will help with that, but my question is how do you get more fans to their events? Because again, they're, they don't operate at the same windows as the senior and youth national teams. So how do you get more fans out to those you know events to, again, provide that even extra bit of awareness in the form of people cheering on these, these great teams that so well deserve it.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that's the uh, pilot program that I um, previously mentioned with the beach soccer and USYS and the state associations is a good example of how we do that. I think we take every single one of those extended national teams and those various subsets of soccer, and I think we, we educate the heck and promote the heck out of them in all 50 states. Um, and, of course, we have 54 states because we divide a couple in half. But I think we we do that, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a difference. I mean, our, our next uh, extended national team that we're targeting is deaf soccer and had the privilege of inviting Trip Neal and a couple other people to our last phone call with beach soccer so they could see what we were doing with them. And he's very excited, and his group's very excited about partnering and what i would like to see and i mentioned this at the united soccer coaches convention presentation with beach soccer um, i attended their presentation and it was a young man, young coach that asked the ladies so you're talking about this program that you have with usu soccer um, do we have to be a member of usu soccer to be part of this and so i took the opportunity to stand up at that time identify myself to the audience and i answered the gentleman's question by saying well no we're developing this program, US Youth is developing this pilot program with beach soccer to involve everyone. So if you're with AYSO or US club, you just reach out to us and we'll include you in this program. Because this is, this is what we wanna do is promote this, this program across, the, across all membership. And then we would do the same thing with power soccer, the same thing with deaf soccer, blind and, and on and on down. And I think it has to be an active, not a passive process. Because uh, to be honest, I can't wait to attend my first beach soccer game in person. They've got me excited just by listening to them talk and looking at some of the pictures. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to expose and promote them to as many avenues as we can. And we have the communication means. This is the age of social media. So there is really no inability um, for a lot of America to get some sort of exposure to this. Um, almost, almost everyone has a cell phone. And that's all you need sometimes to just get a, a connection.
0: I know we're running a little bit late, but I want to wrap up with a couple of questions. My first one for you is, outside of soccer, you've been practicing for many years as a trauma general and thoracic surgeon, which is not, not something you see every day from people involved in the governance of U.S. soccer. So what qualities do you take from your professional career that have helped you navigate all of these different avenues that we have here at U.S. soccer?
1: Well, um, to be a, a trauma surgeon, general surgeon, a thoracic surgeon, um, the number one, the number one quality you take from that, that applies to soccer, is that you don't do it alone. So when I walk into uh, an operating room, um, I, I love to say the phrase is, "I never walk in there alone." Um, and one of the things we do before we start any operation is every single person has the opportunity to speak and define their roles and make a commitment to the patient before they're asleep, um, that we're gonna do the best job we can to have that be successful. I think if you take that same sort of philosophy, it applies equally to soccer and the organizations here. I think each one of us that's involved, uh, whether we're paid or we're volunteers, I think if each one of us comes forward identifies our roles, makes a commitment to each other that we're gonna do the best we can for the game of soccer. And in particular, the people that are participating in soccer, um, I I think you're gonna be successful. And that's what I've tried to apply during my soccer career, both as a player uh, and as a referee and as a coach and as an administrator. And um, it equally of course applies in, in my profession as a surgeon. As we
0: enter this era, you're you're about to, again, have the election at the annual general meeting next weekend. There's going to be a lot of people in that room. And as someone who was proud to serve as co-chair on the fan council for four years, uh, there's only going to be two votes represented by fans in that room. As we move forward, how would you incorporate the views of fans and include them more in the governance of U.S. soccer provided that they have, you know they're the reason why a lot of this infrastructure is needed, and why you travel all over the country, and why you're speaking to so many people. How do fans become more involved in this process, and how, as vice president, will you help bridge that gap?
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, again, it's um, I would rely on the fact that I I also am a fan. Uh, so I've been to have had the privilege and opportunity to attend a lot of World Cups. Um, We went to France. Uh, My wife and I went to Vancouver. We've been to Brazil with the men. Uh, We had the opportunity to be at Pasadena uh, when Brandy decided to do her thing with her shirt, uh, which she still hates when when I remind her of that. (laughs) Um, So I I think being a fan, uh, in addition to being the vice president would already give me a perspective of what fans need. And I know we talked a little bit earlier about, the professional sports and stability and promotion and 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 that's what a fan wants a fan just wants the ability to cheer and be happy uh also to be disappointed and can't wait till the next game um uh, you know we we talked about the 49ers and and the the lions well guess what next year those roles could be reversed but you and i will still be uh ardent fans for our football teams and i think both of us and a lot of people in america um, our fans for soccer. And it starts at the beginning. It, it really starts at the youth. So maybe now I'm kind of um, showing my, my stripes as far as all the youth and time that I've spent with the youth. But if we can give the youth and their parents and their families a positive experience from the beginning, they're going to be our fans and they'll be our fans for life. I, our goal needs to be we need to create fans for life. And the way you do that, you create a positive experience, either as a player, as a spectator, referee, coach, and then you continue to support that experience. And I think that's what U.S. soccer is doing and needs to continue to do. And I think the most important thing is to continue to rely on their membership to support that goal.
0: And the last question I have for you before we let you go, this is your final pitch final elevator speech, what have you, 60 seconds, or what have you, your final pitch to fans that are following this election, again, summarizing your candidacy for U.S. soccer vice president.
1: Sure. I I, I think I can make it simple. Um, uh, like I said, I, I respect the other gentlemen that uh, were, are, are running. I expect, you know, I respect them. Um, I would say that The key qualities that I think a vice president needs uh, in the upcoming four years is they need to have experience. uh, They need to be collaborative leaders uh, and they need to be committed to this functional unification that I talked about because that really is gonna be the key to success um, during this four year golden opportunity that we have coming up. Because if, if we drop the ball on this one, um, it, it's going to be difficult to recover. Um, and again, I'm optimistic that we won't, but I do think it's going to take, uh, collaborative leadership. It's going to take experience. You, you don't learn the soccer culture and the soccer ecosystem in a few months. It takes years of communicating with people and working with goal goal-oriented, goal-oriented, um, uh, perspective. So, that, that would be my my two-cent pitch uh, moving forward. And you know, I just appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you today and share this information with anyone. And, of course, anybody who would like to reach out to me, they can feel free to to grab me before Dallas. I think they're probably tired of hearing uh, from Nathan and I by now, but uh, I'm sure you'll hear a little bit more from both of us.
0: Dr. Pete Sophie, thank you so much for joining us on the USA Soccer Cast. Really appreciate it, and I wish you the best of luck in the election. Nice to talk to you.
1: Thanks, Donald. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Pete Soapfi for coming on the show and answering these questions. Really appreciate him addressing fans via the show. And I'd also like to thank Nathan Goldberg and Mike Cullinan for coming on the show over the last week to discuss these important issues directly to fans. The election takes place next weekend at U.S. Soccer's annual general meeting in Dallas. The National Council meeting, where this election, among other things, takes place, will be on Saturday morning, February 10th, starting at 9 a.m. Streamed on U.S. Soccer's YouTube channel, so I highly encourage everyone to tune in and watch all of it, get involved in the governance of our federation. It's only then that we can really see what it takes to make the improvements necessary to keep our soccer nation growing stronger. And we can make a push to get more fans involved in that process. And let me tell you, the National Council meeting is always interesting. There are a lot of fireworks that happens every single year. So I highly encourage you to check it out. The U.S. Soccer Fan Council has two votes for vice president among a sea of votes from the other member associations, athletes, and board members. So I know that they will represent as well. I just rolled off the fan council after serving four years, and they are really doing work to increase fan representation and make sure that we are all in that room next Saturday. But it helps if people sound off about the federation governance, tune in and learn more about the issues facing our nation. So let us know who you think should be U.S. Soccer Vice President between Nathan Goldberg and Dr. Pete Sophie. Tag us on Twitter or sound off in the comments on the article for this episode over at starsandstripesfc.com. Speaking of YouTube, I'm excited to announce that we now have a YouTube channel where currently you can listen to every single episode of this show. So if YouTube is a way you listen to music and podcasts along with videos, you now have that option with this show. Head to youtube.com. Slash at USA SoccerCast. You can then subscribe and listen to the show there. Like, rate, and review episodes one by one. It's highly appreciated. And hey, down the line, it may mean some video content for you. We don't have any video content yet, but you can at least listen to this show on that platform if you so choose. But that will do it for episode number 126 of the USA SoccerCast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, follow us on Twitter. We are at USA SoccerCast. Don't forget, we have affiliate programs with Homage, Fanatics, MLS Store, and Breaking Tea. Head to linktree.com slash USA SoccerCast to learn more. Click the links to those sites and support the show while getting the latest gear. And, of course, we encourage topic suggestions as we move forward. You can email them to usasoccercast at gmail.com or tag us on Twitter. We'll talk to you again soon, y'all. Peace.